In this podcast, we will reveal how saloons, over time, became a wide range of entertainment and pleasure facilities that offered gambling and drinking, depicting an image of saloons that early temperance movers would have apprehended. Early saloons in Dodge City were dark and cheaply built, and set to take all the money off an early buffalo hunters and cattle drivers. As a result, violence sometimes transpired due to the mix of guns, whiskey, girls, and the isolated life on the prairie. Throughout the podcast, we will discuss how the Dodge City saloon culture developed after the railroad arrived on September 12, 1872. In the beginning, Dodge City was a buffalo town for a few years, before the cattle drives began in 1874, and its cultural vices continued to grow in saloons until the Kansas Prohibition took an effect in 1881. In this session, we will explore how Dodge City became the crossroads for many factors that affected the West. The cattle trade, military presence, railroad, prohibition, and prosperity. The topic of early saloons in Dodge City will also allow us to examine the relationship between the saloon and prohibition when the West was becoming civilized. Dodge City, consequently, makes a revealing subject in examining the saloon's early history, partly because of the precise ways the city and population tried to negate the money brought in by saloons and the immoral behavior that some saloons promoted. In addition, Dodge City's saloon story demonstrates how the public opinion of the saloon changed as the world they found themselves in changed. The specific story we are about to explore and the details of the early history of Dodge City saloons may be unique. Still, the overall theme of how saloons were founded in Dodge City is similar throughout the history of the West. Wild West Podcast is proud to present Early Saloons in Dodge City with our special guest, Mr. Keith Wondra, the newly appointed curator at Dodge City Museum. Keith Wondra was born and raised in Wichita, Kansas. He graduated from Wichita State University with bachelor's and master's degree in history. Before being employed at Boot Hill Museum, Mr. Wondra worked at Old Cowtown Museum in Wichita as an assistant curator and curator of collections and exhibits at the Royal Gorge Regional Museum in Canyon City, Colorado. He is also the author of several books on Kansas and Wichita history. Welcome, Keith. Thanks. Keith, can you tell us a little bit about your plan to share Dodge City history through your Coffee with the Curator program? Yes, the Coffee with the Curator program will highlight Dodge City's history topics once every two or three months. Some of the presentation topics will coincide with traveling exhibits that Boo Hill Museum is doing, such as the Smithsonian's Voices and Votes exhibit that will be at the, at the museum from March 25th to May 7th, 2023. And also my goal with the program is to educate the public about Dodge's history and to help promote Boo Hill Museum, especially during the non-busy months. I, I think that's a great idea. That's that's something the kind of filling a gap that has never really been done here. So I think it's pretty awesome that you're doing that. Uh, so Keith, before there was a Dodge City, there was, of course, a Fort Dodge. Many of the first ranches established in the vicinity of the post during the formative years proved to be frequent sources of trouble for the garrison. 
These enterprises were referred to as whiskey ranches by the military, reflecting their proprietors' intentions. The Indian tribes along the Arkansas River tolerated these ranches because they served as a primary source of liquor, guns, and ammunition. An astute owner of such an undertaking could expect as much as a 20 to 1 return on his investments when his trade goods were exchanged for horses, buffalo robes, or annuity currency that had been given out to the Indians by government reservation agents. The public trains, which frequently passed by the fort, proved to be a severe problem for the garrison's officers. Enterprising wagon hands were well aware of the lucrative market for whiskey that could be found among the troops and civilians on the post, and gallons of the forbidden spirits were smuggled onto the post despite the rigorous inspections that the post officers carried out. The topic for discussion would be what significant decision was made by the post commander at Fort Dodge that promoted the saloon business and the forming of a township. Well, mainly you have to look at the construction of the Sutler store, which was built around 1865, made out of wood. Uh, whiskey was available from 6.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. That was not just for soldiers, but it was also for civilians. Um, the soldiers' use of the saloon was regulated closely by the military, with it being shut down when soldiers got to the joint too freely. And this was really became a problem when Colonel Richard Irving Dodge became the commanding officer at Fort Dodge in the summer of 1872. He was opposed to the sale of whiskey at the post. During the summer of 1872, the saloon was closed due to soldiers assigned to escort mail to Camp Supply in Oklahoma being so drunk that they had trouble mounting their horses. Even Dr. William S. Tremaine, the post-surgeon, complained to Colonel Dodge that whiskey was being smuggled into the hospital, that he could not heal soldiers if they kept on drinking excessive amounts of whiskey. The two owners of the Sutler store was Richard M. Wright and A.J. Anthony, and their clerks were A.J. Peacock and Herman J. Fringer. Peacock and Fringer would, be, would come into hand in, in the future Dodge City because they, they own saloons in, in, on Long Front Street. The expectation of a new town and the coming of the railroad led George Hoover, a 24-year-old Canadian, to go to Kansas City and buy a wagon load of whiskey. He then returned to Fort Dodge, tied a rag to his wagon wheel, and it measured out five miles west of the Fort Dodge military reservation. He set up shop on June 17, 1872 at 8, 8 o'clock in the morning, about halfway between present-day 2nd and 3rd Avenue south of the tracks. Hoover had to set up his saloon five miles west of Fort Dodge because Colonel Dodge banned the sale of alcohol on the fort. And then Hoover and his partner, John G. McDonald, erected a tent and started to pour whiskey at 25 cents per ladle in the, new, in the newly formed Dodge City. 25 cents a ladle. What, uh, about what do you figure that, that would be uh, in today's dollars for, I mean, I'm, I'm figuring maybe a four or five ounce ladle. I think I looked it up on you know, one on one of the many inflation calculators that are available on the internet, and it's about a little bit over six hundred dollars. A little over six hundred dollars. Yep. Oh wow. In in twenty twenty one money. So Hoover was making quite a bit of money even back in eighteen seventy two. Uh, well, he died one of the richest people in the state mm-hmm. of Kansas, so I guess that that's a good way to start. Uh, so then, as you you talk about Hoover and and McDonald's and. Uh, of course, there were there were others as well. I mean, the first business in Dodge City was a bar, so was the second, as I recall. But uh, so the first saloons in Dodge City, Hoover, McDonald's, and the others, were 
hastily thrown together tents or lean-tos, uh, where a buffalo hunter, soldier, or cattle drover might make a deal while away on their off hours. In talking about the first saloons in Dodge City, what did they look like? Who were the first men to establish them? Well, they weren't really fancy like like you see in if you go to the museum in, the, in Long Branch exhibit that we that's at Boot Hill. They they were really plain. They were either tents and or wood frame buildings, and they all and both of them had dirt floors. And the interiors were plain with and didn't really have any of the fancy paintings and bars that it became in future Dodge City saloons. And also, they didn't have billiard tables either. That was one of the big major things that a lot of saloons had after 1872 was a bunch of uh, billiard tables. And each of them claimed they had the best billiard table in Dodge City in Kansas. The second saloon and one of the first wood buildings in Dodge City was George Hoodoo Brown's and Charlie Stewart's saloon on the south side of the tracks. They built a 200-square-foot structure with lumber from Russell, Kansas. They first went to Hayes, but found, but found none. Brown and Stewart bought a gallon of whiskey for $2 and served 25-cent drinks. By the fall of 1872, Dodge City had 13 wood frame buildings, with five of the 13 being saloons. I appreciate the way you described that, uh, described the early days saloons, uh, especially it's, as I've always kind of looked at it, when these were being thrown together uh, in 1872, you know, there was no way in the world to believe that old Buffalo City was going to last till 1873. Uh, and of course, you know, it wasn't, Dodge wasn't incorporated until three years after that. Uh, so the, they were very functional. Uh, well, the, the fancy came along much, much later as the, as the money started trekking in. So besides Hoodoo Brown being the second saloon in Dodge City, what were some of the other early saloons and who operated them? Well, one of the most, probably the most famous of the early ones was the Dodge House. It was actually a hotel, restaurant, and, and, and it also had a saloon. It was built in 1872 by Thomas Essington and was known as the Essington House. A little bit after 1872, A.B. Boyd and George Deacon Cox bought, bought it after Essington got drunk and was killed by his cook. Is the building was renamed the Dodge House. It's partially destroyed by fire in 1890, but it was also moved to 112 to 114 West Front Street. It was torn down around 1909. Another early one was Tom Sherman's Dance Hall and Saloon. It's built in 1872 by Tom Sherman, south of the tracks, on the corner of Locust Street, which is now Trail Street, and Bridge Street, which is now 2nd Avenue. It was a simple frame building, Hamilton Ham Bell buys Sherman's Dance Hall in May 1875. Tom Sherman leaves Dodge a little bit after Bell's buying of the, of the Dance Hall. And then Sherman's Dance Hall becomes Ham Bell's Varieties Dance Hall. Uh, so, Keith, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Tom Sherman's Dance Hall. Uh, of course, Sherman uh, being part of the, the vigilante group and such a... I, I think one of the most quintessential characters of earliest uh, pre-incorporation, pre-law enforcement uh, vigilante run Dodge City, uh, when it was literally, I, I'd say, about as close to hell on earth as you could you could get. One of my favorite Western stories actually comes from uh, Tom Sherman's dance hall that has been a, a almost a, a print the legend kind of story for, for decades, uh, until really maybe in the last... 15, 20 years, it's, it's really, all the research has really become together to prove that this isn't case. 
uh, fact that one of the most well-known uh, Western cowboy ballads actually has its origins in Tom Sherman's dance hall. So, and as the as the story goes, uh, Sherman, uh, after being the the bar owner, businessman that he was, uh, saw a cowboy who was being, oh, rather belligerent in the saloon. Sherman took it upon himself to throw the young blackguard out of the front door, uh, walked back out through the front door, followed him out in the street, and and shot him, uh, and didn't kill him, uh, although the man was just kind of staggering out there in the the street and the the mud and the blood and the beard, to use Johnny Cash's lyrics, I guess. Uh, And Sherman looked around the street said uh, to anybody who within earshot said well I guess I better shoot him again hadn't I boys and put his gun between the man's eyes and blew his head off well that happened to be witnessed by a a, a cowboy who was traveling through by the name of Francis Maynard uh, Maynard was a a poet uh, of very little note uh, in in the modern era although he is Several collections of his his poetry can be found today. He wrote a a poem, lyrics that were sort of uh, based on the old Irish ballad Bard of Armagh, uh, set to the tune. And as it started out, as I rode out past Tom Sherman's bar room, and these these lyrics eventually evolved into the cowboy ballad we know now as Streets of Laredo, uh, which. Originally, just you know, I said it has its origins in Tom Sherman's barroom in Dodge City. So, one of the stories that I love about old Dodge. So then, besides those two saloons that you mentioned, uh, what other early eighteen seventy two saloons uh, of note were there? Well, you had uh, you had Hoover McDonald Saloon along, and that kind of coincided with the, their wholesale liquor warehouse. Around the fall of 1872, Vermont moved their saloon to a wooden frame building on Front Street. Uh, originally, that, that the saloon was actually originally south of the tracks in, the, in a tent. And, and they moved it five doors east of the northeast corner of 2nd Avenue and Front Street. They were in this location until 1875. And in about 1875, Hoover bought out McDonald's interest and moved one door west, which is four doors east of the northeast corner of 2nd Avenue and Front Street. He was actually one door east of the long of the future Long Branch Saloon. Hoover was at this location in 1884 when he moved his saloon and wholesale liquor business to three doors west of the northwest corner of Railroad Avenue and Front Street. He closed the saloon and wholesale liquor business in 1885. That he kind of felt that the prohibition was getting gearing up, and he wanted to be he, he wanted to get ahead of it. So he he sold it and actually started constantly mainly on his mill that he had south of town. Another early saloon was the Alhambra. It opened in 1872 on the northwest corner of 1st Avenue and Front Street. It's opened by Peter L. Beatty and James Dog Kelly. Building the house of the saloon was extremely well-traveled by the time it got to Dodge City. In August of 1872, it was first erected in Leavenworth, Kansas, then moved to Junction City, then Ellsworth, then to Hayes, and then finally to Dodge. 1874, Kelly reinforced the frame structure and added a restaurant and a billiard table. In 1879, the one-story structure was moved and work began on a two-story structure, which later became the Opera House. 
Another early one was the Billiard Hall Saloon. It opened in the summer of 1872 by A.J. Peacock, who originally was a clerk in the Sutler store at Fort Dodge. His saloon was actually four doors west of the northwest corner of First Avenue and Front Street. Peacock heavily mortgaged the property, and by September 1876, he sold it to Chalkley Beeson. Beeson then renamed the saloon the Saratoga. Another one was Waters and Hanoran's Billiard Hall Saloon, not to be confused with Peacock's Billiard Hall Saloon, which makes doing research on saloons in Dodge City very complicated. Opened in the summer of 1872 by Moses Waters and James Hanoran, two doors east of the northeast corner of 1st Avenue and Front Street. Their saloon was one of the first in Dodge City to have a billiard table. By 1874, they had attached a livery and a feed stable. Moses Waters became the sole owner in 1877. Waters then turned the operation over to Henry Sturm, who renamed it the Occident Saloon. Sturm remodeled the Occident by adding a Bonton parlor, where his German-American friends could sip their lager beer quietly. And those were basically the, the earliest saloons in Dodge City that, that are known. There's quite a few more that aren't known, that aren't printed in the newspapers or in books. In the 1872 hard scrabble days of Dodge City, the whiskey served was some of the wickedest stuff made with raw alcohol, burnt sugar, and maybe a little chewing tobacco. These early whiskeys carried names such as Tanglefoot, Forty Rod, Tarantula Juice, Taos Lightning, Red Eye, and Coffin Varnish. Also famous was Cactus Wine, made from a mix of tequila and peyote tea, and Mule Skinner, made with whiskey and blackberry liquor. The house rod gut was often at least 100 proof, though the barkeep sometimes cut it with turpentine, ammonia, gunpowder, or cayenne. Some brands of these types of whiskey were distilled on whiskey ranches, and others were purchased outright from distilleries. What were some of the prominent brands of whiskey sold in the first saloons of Dodge City? Well, the main type of whiskey sold in Dodge City Saloon was corn mash whiskey. It contained 40-50% ethyl alcohol by volume. And it also contained three main ingredients, grain, water, and yeast. It was aged in new charred oak barrels and was called bourbon. Almost every time of whiskey during that time period was called bourbon. It didn't matter where it came. If it had corn in it, it was called bourbon. Uh, one of the other types of whiskey was called the old steakhead. Its ingredients were one gallon of alcohol, one pound of plug or black twist of tobacco for color, one pound black strap molasses for flavor, one handful of red Spanish peppers for spice, five gallons of river water, Two rattlesnake heads per barrel. This gives its this gives it spirit. Then drop it in horseshoe. If the horse if the shoe sinks, it isn't ready. When it rises to the surface and floats, the whiskey is ready to drink. Another type of whiskey was the overnight whiskey, a watered down with wa- with water or other unmentionable ad- adulterations. And the watering down of whiskey made the saloon owners a big profit. A gallon of whiskey cost the saloon keeper $2 a gallon, and he sold a drink for 25 cents. He got about a 700% profit. So if you watered down more of it, you, you, you got more of a profit because you got more out, out of your gallon of, of whiskey you had. And just to give an example, kind of a rough estimate, the amount of whiskey drank in Dodge City from 1872 to 1876 was 2,250 barrels, which is about 70,875 gallons are about 4,536,000 drinks. Because after the railroad reached Dodge City on September 5th, 1872, beer, brandy, champagne, wine, and various types of whiskey was available in Dodge City saloons. If that's not a, a recipe for a drunken, wickedest city in America, I don't know what is. It, 
Uh, no wonder we had all those awesome, colorful nicknames. Uh, so eventually, there was uh, every type of saloon that one could imagine. These were gambling saloons, restaurant saloons, billiard saloons, dance hall saloons, and of course the ever-present, plain old-fashioned, just-drinking saloon. On the south side of the tracks, they took on names such as Lady Gay. On the north side of the tracks were the saloons where dance hall girls were prohibited, such as the Long Branch, Saratoga, Old House, and Lone Star. Some of these saloons never closed, catering to their ever-present 24-hour days, seven days a week. A vital talking point on these saloons is their locations, how city ordinances regulated them, and why. Actually, I noticed a couple of times, Keith, uh, you mentioned that certain businesses, saloons, uh, started on what is now the south side of the tracks and then eventually moved north. Uh, that seems to be kind of the origin of a plot line that goes throughout Dodge City. So uh, kind of lay some of that on us, if you would. Well, actually, Dodge City actually started out on the south side of the tracks. And then once it, once they figured out that Buffalo City would actually become an actual city, they they then moved north on Front Street and, and built the famous wood wood-sided houses that, of course, majority of them all had false fronts. For people that don't know what false fronts are, it's basically made it look like a one-story building was actually two stories. That's very very common in the Old West. It was an easy, cheap way to make a one-story building to look like a two-story building. But really, the, the city ordinances were really the ma- main regulation of saloons. Dodge City had no taxes during during the Cowtown years because the, all their money came from the vices, regulation of the vices, such as gambling, prostitution, and saloons. They were very easy targets to get from, from city leaders. They, they were the immoral part of the living in the city. So you, it was easy to, it was kind of, like the sin, kind of like what we call sin taxes now. It was easy to tax them. Not a lot of people complained about, being, about those being taxed. City Ordinance Number 3 was passed in 1875, which set the price of getting a dram shop license, which was basically if you had a saloon, you had to have a license to run it. In 1879, the cost of that license went to $200. The city treasury in 1882 received $1,120 from saloons, $865 from gambling and prostitution. Really, the only money they really had to spend on was law enforcement. They didn't have to spend money on streets or parks or or anything like what we do nowadays. It was basically just law enforcement only. And the ordinance paid for all the city services and costs. There were no taxes. Licensing applied to saloons on Front Street and to saloons south of the tracks. So there's really no difference between the two of them. That mainly regulated. That way you didn't have a saloon open up and, this, and the city didn't know about it. Because prostitution was still was illegal in Kansas in, during this time. But all your cow towns basically had these fines and dram shop licenses, which mainly, mainly made them all their money. Uh, so, Keith, something that I'd like to maybe go into a little more detail about is, uh, I guess, a good starting point. Because uh, you talked about the ordinances, uh, what was legal, illegal in Dodge City. And uh, I'm actually going to go to a very famous photograph uh, that many people have seen in Dodge City, recreated at Boot Hill Museum, is the old Front Street well. With the, the sign there on the well, said, carrying of firearms, strictly prohibited. Now, this doesn't say anything about the north side of the railroad tracks, the south side of the railroad tracks, even though so often we hear the the deadline, you know, things that are, are legal on the south side or, or illegal on the north. What's the truth of that? 
Well, yeah, the reason you had the strictly carrying, forbidding the carrying of firearms was to try and basically came with the violence that happened early, early Dodge City when then you had all the vigilante committees. That was the main, the main reason that they had, they started passing the gun control ordinance. You really tell you the, the whole myth of the violence in Dodge City, especially during the Calatron years is way overblown. You probably had average one or two deaths per year. And really you got to think about this in common sense terms is that if you're, if you're a cowboy coming up and you, all your cowboys keep on getting killed, would you, would you still go to that city? And Dodge City depended so much on the prostitution saloon, all those ordinances that are passed that they would rather just have the cowboys sleep it off in the jail and then come back again. We want cowboys to be killed. And that's why you know, like Wyatt Earp, for example, would strike the guy over the head with his butt, the butt of his revolver, and that would knock the knock the cowboy out, and then he could sleep in the sleep it off in the jail and come back and spend whatever money he had left the next day. The ordinances, this, the deadline was kind of was true because you kind of you really the South Side really didn't enforce the ordinances that much. It was kind of rarely did the marshals ever go down south of the tracks, and then that was especially true after when Ed Masterson got shot. In 1878, Ed Masterson was the brother of Bat Masterson. After Ed's shooting, like I said, Marshalls rarely went down south of the tracks. And the, Ed Masterson was shot in, in front of the Lady Gay's dance hall and saloon. Uh, so we've already kind of talked at length about, you know, the 7,000 gallons of whiskey and uh, all of the other, the drinking and the carousing and the trouble, uh, if not out and out brutality of violence in, in Dodge City in the early days. And something had to change. One thing that I've always found interesting about Dodge City is that so many, uh, so many of those famous Western towns, you've got, you know, the, that one lawman that sort of tamed a town, you know, like Abilene or Hayes at Wild Bill Hickok. And, you know, it's just, you know, the one name here, the one name there. And Dodge City had all of them at the same time. Wyatter, Bill Tillman, Bat Masterson, Charlie Bassett, Ed Masterson, all of the entire Masterson and Earp family, all serving the law over the, the same period of years. And I think it took that that much uh, manpower to corral early Dodge, to, to calm it down, uh, so to speak. And even going beyond that, uh, eventually the laws sort of had to change as well, not just in Dodge City, but across the state of Kansas, uh, if you will. And, and with that, we're, we're actually going into sort of early Kansas prohibition. Uh, we beat the, the federal government by at least a couple of decades. So Kansas entered the Union uh, without a liquor law. And when the state's population was burgeoning, indeed, Kansas population increased threefold from 1860 to 1870, and then tripled again during the 1870s. Temperance advocates were not pleased that the liquor problem was left unsolved by the new state constitution, especially with the influx of saloon keepers, gamblers, and prostitutes. Although a state temperance society was organized in Kansas in April 1861, this group needed to be more effective in its early years. Nearly a decade passed before the temperance movement had any real cohesion. Many Kansans became adamantly opposed to liquor and its effects. They immediately galvanized their efforts to bring about a stricter dram shop law, being inspired by church revivals throughout the country and the advent of the Murphy movement. 
1876, a new triad of jurists, Horton, Brewer, and Valentine, also authored several significant decisions in Kansas' fledgling years under the state's new prohibitionary law. The result was these justices seceded in the Kansas Senate, passing a prohibition resolution by a vote of 37 to 0 on February 21, 1879. It was sent to the House, where it passed 88 to 31 on March 5, 1879. Senate Joint Resolution No. 3, which read in part, The manufacture and sale of intoxicating liquors shall be forever prohibited in the state, except for medical, scientific, and mechanical purposes, would be presented to the people of Kansas for acceptance or rejection. It was not until January 1, 1881, that the Kansans Constitution ensured that Kansas became legally dry through the Prohibitory Enforcement Act. It took almost two years for the reformers in Dodge City to take action, and when they did, it became known as the Saloon War of 1883. So Keith, what were the initial phases of prohibition leading up to the Saloon War of 1883? And what were the after-effects on the sale of liquor in Dodge City? The, the whole the acts leading up to the prohibition was the temperance movement, which became in Kansas became well-organized by 1878. It was started earlier than that, but it really didn't become a factor until 1878, especially until you got the election of John St. John to become governor, a very pro-temperance governor. And then especially when he, especially when he passed the constitutional amendment and started in 1881, that really was supposed to in supposed to make Kansas dry, but unfortunately that did not happen. Cities like Dodge City, for example, ignored the rule, even to the even to the chagrin of of the governor, they ignored it. Um, then Dodge City continued ignoring the amendment so much so that prompted important figures such as Governor St. John in 1881 to single out Dodge City, along with other towns such as Wichita and, and even, even Topeka, where we're ignoring the constitutional amendment. Even towns like Hayes, which had this very strong German immigrant population, they weren't going to give up their alcohol. Especially in Dodge, the mayor, Alonzo Webster, made a compromise with the Dodge City Templars in June of 1882. Dodge City Templars promised to refrain from corroborating with governor, the governor's influence interference in Dodge City. And Webster promised to appoint a pro-Templar member to be city marshal. And so, therefore, the mayor discharged the city's law officers and hired new ones. Mayor Webster installed 14 new regulations for the police department, with several of them addressing long-standing problems. The regulations include the following. Officers could not engage in private businesses, business outside their official duties. That was in referment to Bat Masterson and Wyatt Earp. Drinking on duty was no longer allowed. Liquor was banned from going into the city jail. And a few other regulations were, were also in effect, such as officers had, had to wear a badge on, on them all the time. And also, if they wanted to get time off, they had to ask the mayor. Because before that, the city police would just take time off whenever they needed, and no one really knew if they had police officers available. And Pete Beamer was appointed city marshal with Clark Chipman as assistant marshal. Unfortunately, Beamer resigns as city marshal less than two weeks on the job. Mayor Webster took over the city marshal duties. By 1883, Dodge City newspapers claimed that state prohibition calmed the town. Other newspapers disagreed with Dodge and one of them was the Medicine Lodge Crescent, who wrote the following. The last preacher we understand has left or talks of leaving Dodge City. This is a regular case with the city of the Plains. And after the last distributor of the gospel flees with his family and household goods to the mountains, 
a blizzard or a storm of hailstones and coals of fire will annihilate the whole town. Dodge C was really ignoring the, the whole thing. And then Webster then endorses Lawrence Deeger for Dodge C mayor, with many believing that Deeger would continue with Webster's compromise. Lawrence Deeger becomes mayor in 1883, and then that really starts off the, the saloon war of 1883. Well, we could certainly spend uh, an entire podcast episode talking about nothing but the the Saloon War of 1883. Uh, and in fact, we have uh, probably more than more than once at this point. Please uh, go back to the old episodes and, and look that up. Send us some questions if you want to know more about that. Uh, but it wasn't really the Saloon War itself in its resolution that wound up closing the saloons of Dodge City. In fact, they didn't really close at all. After the after the end of that, uh, what was kind of the aftermath uh, of this whole, kind of the, the heyday of the saloon era of Dodge City? Well, really the aftermath was like, especially at the end of the saloon, Luke Short was still allowed to, to run the, to co-run the Long Branch with Harris. Really what really ended the saloon war was the fires of 1885 and 1886. It wasn't the, wasn't the temperance movement or prohibition that ended it. And really the fires were really very devastating, especially to even to Dodge C's economy. The saloons were such an integral part of Dodge C's economy that when, once they burned down the ground, that crippled Dodge C's economy. But of course, Dodge C grew, rebuilt, and then they rebuilt in stone brick buildings. I mean, you had three fires that really started in, in 1885 and 1886 that, totally destroyed Front Street and Chestnut Street. And they really, those two fires, rumors abounded that they, temperance movement and the prohibitions were the ones that started. And so you really kind of, but of course those are just rumors. They were the first, the, the first fire, which occurred on November 27th, 1885, which destroyed basically many of the saloons on Front Street. Because you got to remember back then, all, all those buildings were, were wood frame buildings. So they started that that November twenty seventh fire started at seven in a room above the junction saloon. Cause was a kerosene lamp exploding, and then the fire just took took out pretty much basically the whole two hundred block of West Front Street. And then the second fire burned down many of the saloons, the old slums, and the boardwalks. According to the Kansas Cowboy, which was an early Dodge City newspaper, the old Dodge with its worldwide celebrity has disappeared. And the third major fire occurred on December seventh, eighteen eighty five, and it damaged the buildings north of Chestnut Street which was a street directly north of Front Street. And this fire started in a room occupied by what the Dodge City Democrat called two fair young ladies. In reality, these two ladies were members of the sporting crowd, mainly prostitutes. And with the night being cold, one of the ladies, Flora Mansfield, known as Sawed Off, asked a shoeshiner to go to her room and light the stove. He set a fire in the stove and left. Moments later, a passerby saw flames beside the chimney and sounded the alarm. A strong north wind hindered the firefighting efforts. Since the buildings to the south burned down 10 days before, the fire could do no damage there. Sparks soon drifted to the south side. Ham Bell organized 40 men to stop the fire from spreading across the tracks. Fire lasted an hour and caused $25,000 worth of damage. Those two fires, they cleansed Dodge City of its morally obnoxious goods and services. The November 27th fire affected the saloons. The December 7th fire affected prostitutes and the sporting houses. And the fires also stopped the evil from encroaching on the respectable Dodge City north of the tracks. And then, uh, then the rest of the Dodge City saloons were destroyed on August 27th by, in 1886 by another fire. They destroyed everything starting from the corner 100 block of West Front Street all the way to the Dodge House. The Dodge House was spared, 
any other wood frame buildings that were on that side of Front Street basically went up, up in flames. A very, very destructive year there in Dodge City, made only worse by the, the following uh, the following year, the winter of 1886-1887 with the, the, the destructive blizzards that really sealed the, the end for old, old Dodge City. Uh, that was kind of the, the end of the original Dodge City. The, the fires, the blizzard uh, really sort of just washed away. Uh, as you said, all the, the evils and vice uh, of old Dodge, uh, and we're left with a pretty nice modern town now. Still uh, as much of a cattle town as it ever was, but maybe not with the the overt drunkenness, gambling, prostitution, and and all the you know the fun stuff. But uh, so, thank you very much, Keith, uh, for being here. It's great to sit down with you, talk with you, wishing you all the best with the upcoming coffee with the curators and just your curator job. Yep. Uh, as a whole, uh, blessings on on what you can bring to Boot Hill Museum. That's we do we do love that place. So. Well, that's it for now. Remember to check out our Wild West podcast shows on iTunes or wildwestpodcast.buzzsprout.com. You can catch us on Facebook at facebook.com/slash Wild West Podcast or on our YouTube channel at Wild West Podcast Mike King YouTube. So make sure you subscribe to our shows listed at the end of the descriptive text of this podcast to receive notifications on all new episodes. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you have any comments or would like to add to our series, you can write us at wildwestpodcast at gmail.com. We will share your thoughts as they apply to future episodes. Join us next time as we continue our story of the life and times of Dave Mather, Part 3, Return to Dodge City. Dodge City.